Take your Bibles and the back of your bulletin there. So we look in God's Word. <coughs> we consider today this gospel truth, the gospel message, and regeneration. God says in the Bible that He, the triune God, He is absolutely holy. And He created mankind to be holy as He is holy. He created mankind to love righteousness as He loves righteousness. But God also says in the Bible, He tells us that through Adam, mankind fell into sin and became thoroughly sinful in every aspect of his being. Romans 3, 10 and following talks about every aspect of our being corrupted by sin. The words that we say, our very character, and our conduct. Every part of us is totally depraved, corrupted by sin. As a result, everyone is spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, verse 1. We have been separated from God. Because of our sin, we will die Physically, because of our sin, everyone deserves eternal death in hell. Yet, or in Paul's terms in Ephesians chapter 2, two of the great words in the Bible, but God, he sent his son to die for sinners, to live a holy life, to die for sinners, and to rise victoriously from the dead. And so based on God's grace, based on his good pleasure, based on his sovereign will, God in eternity past, as we saw last week, in eternity past, he chose to bring some sinners to salvation in Jesus Christ. These are facts. These are truths. But there are questions that we can have. That arise in our minds. Kind of going off Romans chapter 3 verses 10 and following. Where it says there is none righteous, no not one. And a question that can arise in our minds is. Well if God in eternity past chose to save some sinners but none are righteous. None seek after God. If none are righteous how will they be accepted by this God? If none understand. How will they gladly and submissively believe to be saved. If none seek after God, how will the elect be saved? If all have turned aside, how will they turn back to follow him? If none fear God, why would even God save them if none fear him? The answer to that is seen in today's gospel truth, the gospel message and regeneration. First, some review from 1 Peter, particularly, and Ephesians 1 last week. Number one, election to salvation involves every spiritual blessing. Look at verse 2 of chapter 1. He says of these believers, they are elect. Note, that's not something you have to wait to eternity to find out. The elect of God are known now because they believe, they trust, they repented of their sins and trusted in the Lord. But it says here, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit 
for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Election is God's gracious and sovereign choice to bring some sinners to salvation in Jesus Christ. We saw last week that involves every spiritual blessing. So just for sake of a quick review, what are those great spiritual blessings that are wrapped up in God's salvation? Well, there's redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Your sins are wiped out, cleared because of the blood of Christ. And not only that, we have, as the elect of God who have trusted in Christ, we have Christ's righteousness credited, imputed to our account. It's not merely that you're a blank slate, you have no sin, and you're just kind of on your own. But we also have a full line of, and the credit line, Christ's righteousness. Another blessing is you have a new nature. You have a new nature. You have a disposition. You have a love for God, a love for the things of the Lord, a love for Christ. Another spiritual blessing, you have a holy standing before God. Sometimes that's described as we have been sanctified. 1 Corinthians 6, I think it's like verse 19 and 20 right in there. Yes, we have to grow in our sanctification, but we have a position right now before God of we are sanctified because we're in Christ. Another spiritual blessing, you have been adopted. You have been brought into God's family. You were a rebel. You were an enemy of God. And what did he do through Christ? He brought you, he made you his son. He made you his daughter. And he didn't make you a second class one. He gave you all the rights, all the privileges that come with being a child of God and all the responsibilities that come with being in his family. Another spiritual blessing, you have been united with Christ forever. This is what sometimes described as, or used, uh, uh, told, said to be as a spirit baptism. We've been put into his body and we are forever there, never separated. We are his bride. And so in that coming kingdom, we will reign with Christ alongside him. You have a guaranteed inheritance. A guaranteed inheritance. I have some money set aside. I have more books set aside than money. And so my kids and some of my sons-in-law have been, as you know, claiming some of those books. Uh, some of my kids who are at home right now who shall remain unnamed are trying to get a leg up on the other ones. And dad, can I have it now? Can I have that book now? It's an inheritance that will probably be there for them. But it's nothing like the inheritance guaranteed for you, Christian. An eternal inheritance. And one last spiritual blessing. Glorification. We will have the resurrected body. We will not just be kind of spirit beings floating around, but we will have an actual glorified resurrected body. We'll live forever on this new or on a new earth in the eternal kingdom. These blessings of salvation that God determined before the beginning of time to show undeserving sinners 
these spiritual blessings, for those who have not yet been saved, they have not experienced those yet. Now we're looking at it from God's perspective, okay? Because remember, do we know which unbelievers are God's elect right now? No, we don't. Uh, as I've said over the years, what's not over the door there? Remember I described that thing? An electometer, okay? When we have unbelievers come in and the light doesn't go off, don't waste your time on them. Don't give them the gospel. It's just going to be vain. And then another unbeliever walks through and the light pops on. Ding! I mean, we didn't put that into our building program. Maybe we should have put into our building program to have an electometer there. It doesn't work that way, does it? Who knows which lost God will save? Only God. That's not our responsibility, is it? What is our responsibility with regards to unbelievers? To give them the message, to lovingly teach them. And I'm going to walk through it in a little bit. But the point that I'm making right now, those that God will save, known only to God, their sins have not yet been forgiven. They are not walking in grace. They are far from God. They have not been brought into his family and adoption. They are lacking all these blessings. They are enemies of God. None are born with these blessings. These blessings don't come naturally. Indeed, unbelievers don't want those blessings, Romans 8 says, verses 5 through 8. They neither seek them, seek them nor desire them. They're controlled by their sin nature. So how does God save sinners? Well, he is not going to adopt someone into his family who still loves sin. He's not going to bring someone into his kingdom who continues loving and serving sin and Satan. There has to be a change, doesn't there? A radical change. A complete change. They have to know, recognize, and fear who they've sinned against. They have to see the nature of their sin their rebellion and their transgression, what they deserve now, their complete inability, and their only hope is Jesus Christ. These changes are the result of hearing the gospel message, of understanding it and believing it. So that brings us to number two then. For sinners to receive them, they must hear the gospel message. Look at verse 12. 1 Peter 1 verse 12. To them it was revealed that, speaking of these prophets, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. They preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, the effective work of the Spirit through the gospel. What are the truths of the gospel message that Christians, that you must proclaim? and teach, and persuade. Many of you right now are already filling in the blanks, aren't you? Confess it. Confess your sin. It's not a sin. Because I've taught this acronym to you to better understand the gospel message. But maybe you've forgotten some of them. The first aspect of the gospel message, number one, is that God is your creator, sustainer, Lord, and judge. 
And I list as two examples there in Acts 13 and Acts 17. In Acts 13, Paul was preaching to Jews. And that's where he started, the God of your fathers. In Acts 17, he was preaching to pagans who had never heard of the triune God, the God of the Jews, who didn't believe in him. But that's still where Paul started, God as their creator. You must begin with God. A second aspect of the gospel message is that everyone is an offensive offender before God. Every human being is an offensive offender before God. Romans 3, we have fallen short of God's glory. We're guilty. None seek after God. That means we are offensive to a holy and righteous God. But we have also offended God. That's 1 John 3. Transgression. We have sinned. We've broken his law. People must recognize, see, understand, believe. They are sinners and transgressors before God. Number three, self-righteousness. Self-righteousness cannot gain forgiveness or justification. Can't make you right before God. Are good works important? Yeah, in fact, we need to go a step further. Good works are essential. But do good works save? No, they don't. They prove, they show you're saved. They're the evidence of that. God's ordained them, Ephesians 2.10, that we would walk in them. But they never... They never can result in washing away sin. They never can result in improving an unbeliever's standing before God. In fact, what are those kinds of works of self-righteousness that I'm doing thinking it's going to make me right before God? That's the second part of the statement. It is damnable. It's worthless. Paul says there in Philippians 3, the good that I did as an unbeliever trusting in that, it's waste. It's garbage. It's dung. Number four, you must teach them about the person and work of Jesus Christ. The person and work of Jesus Christ. Who was Jesus? Yeah, I've heard of Jesus. Okay, good. Let's move on to step two, the sinner's prayer. No. You cannot assume that. You cannot assume just because they know this name, Jesus, and the, the phrase Jesus Christ, that they know what's involved with that. Who was he? How did he live? Why did he come? Why did he live? Why did he die? What was the nature of his death? For what purpose and end? His resurrection from the dead. What was the nature of that resurrection? Was it spiritual? Was it kind of some kind of a phantom? Was it a, a good idea that the apostles dreamed up? Or was it was actual, literal body the same that he was buried in? This is a gospel truth that must be taught and must be understood. And we might say right away, well, hold on. If I'm in the elevator with someone and I've only got a few floors to win them to Christ, this is going to take too long. You're right. It doesn't mean you're not, it doesn't mean you're without a means to witness to them. I'll get to that in a little bit. But when you start watering down the gospel, there is no gospel. There is not that truth. Number five, G-O-S-P, 
Remember I had to get a little creative with the E here? Because we have next repentance and faith. So number five is eschew, E-S-C-H-E-W. You must eschew sin and self-righteousness and trust in Christ. And as I've said and taught over the years, do not tell an unbeliever to eschew sin. This is for you. This is a home uh, recipe, okay? This is for you to understand and, and have it in your mind because so much, so often, you know, when witnessing to somebody, it's just, I don't know what to say. This is giving you some teaching points so that you got it. You have it nailed down in your mind. You know the basics of the gospel. You need to put in your own words, scriptural words, but you must eschew. That means turn away, hate, uh, have an absolute abhorrence of sin and self-righteousness. It can't save me. I have to turn to Christ and trust in him. Uh, in the next message in the gospel truth, that's what that message will be on repentance and faith. Last, number six, the well, last aspect of the gospel message is live the new life. Live the new life. Again, this isn't what saves you. But if someone has truly repented of sin, if somebody's really relying on Christ and has received him, what will be seen? How, the, how should they live? They should live and grow like Jesus Christ. A couple things here before we move on. Several things, as a matter of fact. Who you are speaking the gospel to must affect what you say. You may say, you're contradicting yourself. You just said, don't worry about that. Just give them the gospel. And here I say, who you're talking to has to control what you say to them. So let me explain what I mean. I'm not talking about changing the message in order to gain a hearing. Give you some examples from scripture I've already talked briefly about. In Acts chapter 13, Paul is speaking to Jews. He can make some assumptions about what they know about God, can't they? Can't he? He knows they have a scriptural understanding of the triune God. They might not believe in the Trinity, but the God of the Bible is who they're trusting in, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he says there. He can speak to them already knowing that they accept that. But when he's speaking to pagan Gentiles in Acts 17, he doesn't go that route. He has to go all the way back to Genesis chapter what? 1. And he doesn't start off by saying, let me give you some exegetical and Hebraic uh, terms for showing that there's a six-day literal creation week. He just assumes it is true. He doesn't get into that. I'm not saying that's not important. It is. But he says, God made you. He made everything. He gives life. He's ordained you where you are at. The controlling issue, my point here, is the starting point. What they do or do not know and understand about God. So let me bring some examples here to our life right here. The two largest religious groups in our area here would be Roman Catholicism and the Amish, probably. Okay. Do they have, look at me here, so I want you to make sure you get it. Do they have a right understanding of who God is? Do they believe in a triune God? Yes, they do. Roman Catholics believe in the Trinity, in a triune God. So do Amish. You can use that as a starting point when you say, I'd like to tell you about God. Oh, I know who you're talking about. 
that gives you a starting point, okay? Similarly about Jesus Christ. They'll have a right basic understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Now, you got to be careful sometimes with the role that Jesus has with Mary and that sort of thing. I'm speaking generally. What about a liberal Protestant? Okay, somebody who has grown up and goes to uh, like a Presbyterian church, USA, or uh, sometimes it depends on the church, a United Methodist church, um, or United Church of Christ especially. They use all the same words that we do. God, Bible, forgiveness, salvation, sin, heaven, hell. They will use all the same words. But what's the difference? They have loaded those words with different meanings. That means you have to stop a second and you have to walk through what, is, what do you believe who God is in Jesus? Yeah, I believe in Jesus, that he rose from the dead. When you hear that, you might think, oh, great. You cannot assume that. You cannot assume that. You have to walk through and teach them about that. Another example. Maybe not so much today. It's getting to this point, but especially in the years to come, this is going to be the case. When we have children growing up in homes that bring God into nothing, homes where they will have two dads or two moms, and these children grow up thinking there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, and they have zero knowledge about God, sin, self-righteousness, Jesus Christ. They have zero about that. There's your starting point with them that helps you see where I need to go with them. What about the Seerites ministering to Buddhists? They really need to start at the square one, don't they? And he's doing a good job at that. What kind of tools do we have available to you? Well, in the back table, I try to be very careful in what we put out there, but we have our Gospel of John's. Those are very helpful. Gospel tracks. Gospel tracks can be, oh no, why are we using that one? And that's a good one. Uh, this is probably, I'm looking at the shortest one that I've got there. This does not go into detail, but guess where it starts off? Who is God? And then sin, the depravity and condemnation of man. What has God done? What should you do? What's faith? What's repentance? If you want something more detailed, I'd go to ultimate questions. We have some of these back there as well. If you have the ability, so let's go back to the elevator, okay? If you have five of these in your pocket, your pocket's going to get kind of big, and these are going to get destroyed. That's where these can be more helpful, because they're smaller, okay? This is why women carry big purses, because they're just jammed with Gospels of John's and, and tracts and things like that, right? But if you have the opportunity, you know you're going to be able to spend some time with someone, uh, really walk through the gospel. I'd recommend something like this, a gospel study that we put together called Your Life and God, where it walks through, and you're going through with that individual. Scripture passages, um, uh, that can be a, a tool that the Lord can use. So the problem, so this is part of giving the gospel so that they can hear, so that the Lord will save them. But the problem is as well that we know sinners of themselves cannot and will not respond to the gospel as they should. 
because their heart is hard. Their eyes are blind. Satan's blinding the eyes. Their ears are stopped. I don't want to listen. Don't want to hear it. I don't want to do that. And Satan's preventing them from seeing and understanding and believing. So it could seem a waste of time giving the gospel to someone if they can't and they won't believe. Uh, illustration that one of my professors used years ago that I've taught here can be helpful in this regard. So here's your unbeliever and surrounding him is this hard shell. Better give him a head, huh? I'm always accused of headless people. <laughs> can you get ladies see that? Okay. Here, here's your unbeliever, okay? Uh, here's you. And I'll make sure to give you a head. There we go. You give them the gospel. The gospel message. And it just kind of seems that because of their sinfulness, because of their hardness, that when you give the gospel, what's going to happen? It seems like what's going to happen. It's just going to do what? Bounce right off. Why are we even bothering doing that? Why bother? Why waste our time? Well, I'm looking at dozens of examples of why we shouldn't waste our time. Because did the Lord save you? Can this person deal with the sin? Can he remove all that? Can he tell Satan to stop blinding my eyes? He doesn't want it. He wants to continue in that. Is there hope for this individual? This is the third part, and the third part of this diagram, and that is God. So walk through that. As you're giving the gospel, what else are you doing? You are praying. Lord, save this soul. Lord, save this soul. And then God, in his good time, does a, a work of grace. And number three, then, giving spiritually spiritual life to the spiritual, the spiritually dead. Look at First Peter 1, 22 and 23. Since you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit. Did you see how he words that there? You have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. In sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again. The intent, the idea of this is this is something that happened to them. They didn't cause themselves to be born again. They were born again. It was an act of God in their heart. How did that happen? Not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God. God uses his word, the gospel, to cause sinners to be born again. Number one, what's the meaning then of regeneration or being born again? Well, I probably didn't need to put this because, well, it's your main point number three. He gives spiritual life to the spiritually dead. Let me add another word here. It is immediate, okay? It's not a situation where somebody can say or God says, he's in the process of being born again. When God gives new birth, it is immediate. And the effects of it are as well. You could write down John 3, 3, unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Write down Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. Titus 3, verses 3 through 5. These are important 
passages that teach this. There's several others as well. Regeneration, being born again, it changes the heart of the unbeliever. It changes his outlook, and it results in a change of life. Completely changes them spiritually. Another passage to write down, Matthew 12, verses 33 and 35. Matthew 12, verses 33 and 35. Jesus said, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. A tree is known by what? Its fruit. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. The point is this. Regeneration changes, if you will, the tree. And it is seen in a change of, if you will, fruit. The unbeliever, well, he of himself, completely all by himself, will he willingly repent of his sin and trust and bow the knee to Christ? No, he will not. But when God causes him to be born again, as the gospel's going there, what will he do then? He will repent and he will believe and he will trust in Christ. It changes the tree and so the fruit. Some years ago, when we were learning about cochlear implants, we watched a number of videos. Not of the process, I would faint, you know, the whole cutting and all that kind of stuff. But just trying to learn and understand, is this, some, is this a route we should go through? Is this something we should do? I will never forget a young mom, married for several years, born deaf, has kids, couldn't ever hear a thing. The process of a cochlear implant is not, some, it's not something where they do the operation and, hey, you're good to go. doesn't work that way, does it? It takes time. you got to let it heal. Then you go to the audiologist. I think that's the right person. You go to the audiologist. They do some uh, checking. And then they turn it on. I have a video of that with Lydia. It's really neat. But she had her full hearing at one time in her life. This mom never did. And in the video, it shows turning it on. And she hears for the first time. And she just starts bawling and crying. She heard her husband's voice for the first time. Something she'd never heard before. She hears her children's voice that she'd never heard before. Before that, she couldn't hear a thing. She was oblivious to it. Had no effect on her. But as soon as the switch got turned on, what happened? She could hear. Do you see how that works in an unbeliever's heart? As an unbeliever, he hears the gospel, and it's foolishness to me, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. Blah, 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 blah. God causes the light bulb to go on. He gives a new heart, opens the eyes and ears. Hears of Christ and weeps with joy and trusts in him and turns from his sin. And life is changed. 
This is the new birth. Number two, how does this work out? What does it look like? Well, the gospel message must be preached and it must be heard. We saw that in verse 12 and also in verse 25. This is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. It must be proclaimed. It must be taught and it must be heard. Then there is regeneration or conviction or calling. These are different words referring to the same event. Regeneration, conviction, and calling. Let me give you some passages along this line. There's four. John 6.65. John 6.65. Jesus said, No one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. John 10.27. John 10.27. My sheep hear what? My voice. Who hears the shepherd's voice? His sheep. My sheep hear. They hear my voice. Romans 8, verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he calls. And then 1 Corinthians 12, and verse 3. 1 Corinthians 12, and verse 3. No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And don't Try to be Mr. Smarty Pants and say, well, unbelievers can say Jesus is Lord. That's not what we're saying by saying Jesus is Lord. This is talking about someone who willingly and with love and affection says, Jesus, he is God with belief. No one can do that except by the Spirit. The gospel must be preached. There then is that regeneration, that being born again. And then the gospel message is believed. It's received. It's welcomed. I have some passages along this line. My favorite is more of a descriptive passage than one that kind of you know, teaches it as a truth. But it is truth because it's God's word. It's Acts chapter 16, verse 14. Acts chapter 16, verse 14. Paul spoke to these women gathered by a riverside in Philippi. One in particular, her name was Lydia. And it says, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things that were spoken by Paul. Paul's speaking. Here's Paul. He's giving the gospel to these women that are gathered there. He's praying. And what did God do? Opened her heart to respond to the things that were spoken by Paul. And you know what's really neat about that? Was that Paul's first choice of where to go? Do you remember? He was planning on going east. The Spirit forbade him. He was going to go north into Bithynia. The Spirit forbade him. What do we do? Let's have a prayer meeting. At night, he sees a vision from a man in Macedonia saying, come over and help us. They immediately, next day, started going over. Why did God direct Paul there? Because who was there? Some of his elect. This was the first from Philippi. Then there would be a demon-possessed woman that God would deliver. Then the Philippian jailer. They would take that gospel down that area. God saves souls through the preaching of the gospel and his giving new life. 
couple other passages about the gospel message being believed and received and welcomed by the work of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 1.5. 1 Thessalonians 1.5. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. 2 Thessalonians 2.14. 2 Thessalonians 2.14. He called you by our gospel. James 1.18. James 1.18, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And we already saw verse 23, having been born again through the word of God. Does this happen every time the gospel goes forth? It doesn't, does it? It doesn't happen the first time. I grew up hearing the gospel. It wasn't until I was 10 that the Lord saved me. But what were my parents doing those 10 years? What were my pastors doing those 10 years? They were faithfully giving the gospel. What, was my, what were my grandmas doing during those 10 years? They were praying. They were living godly lives. We sow the seed widely and broadly because we know that the Lord will give life. Number three, God causes sinners to be born again through the gospel. I have here from 1 Peter. Look at some things from 1 Peter, uh, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. What's the basis? What's the ultimate reason why he causes you to be born again? God's mercy. He doesn't let you go. His, his compassion... To what end? To a living hope. Through what power? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I mean, we're talking about giving spiritual life to the spiritual dead. Where does that power come from? Jesus had to rise from the dead to defeat death so that he then gives life. Verse 22, to obey the truth. Verse 23, through the agency of the word of God that is living and abiding forever. Don't think of this, the gospel and regeneration as, well, we got to do this one or this one. No. It's a both and. You cannot cause someone to be born again, can you? What's your responsibility, Christian? Accurately, compassionately, patiently, teaching giving, relaying, proclaiming, testifying of this gospel and praying, Lord, save their soul. And doing that and continue to do that. I neglected to put on your, your bulletin there, not that you really would have had room anyway, a few points of application. I have three. And they're from 1 Corinthians, so I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Applications for three specific applications from this truth, this gospel truth. The first application, be faithful with the message of the gospel. Be faithful with the message of the gospel. Be faithful with the message of the gospel. 
And from 1 Corinthians 1, write down verse 18 and verses 22 to 25. Be faithful with the message of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, it's not like, you know, the, the ink on the page has some kind of glowing kind of wow power. The power is in the fact that this is the Spirit working through it. And verse 22. Jews request for a sign. They want to see it. Greeks seek after wisdom. They have a puffed up intellect. But we proclaim, preach Christ crucified. And that concept of a crucified Savior and Messiah, that's a stumbling block to Jews, and it's foolishness to Greeks. Look at verse 24. But to those who are called, and when you read that word, think in terms of what we looked at today and last week. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Be faithful, Christian, with the message of the gospel. Number two, be faithful in your ministry of the gospel. Be faithful in your ministry of the gospel. This is chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Be faithful in your ministry of the gospel. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. What does a faithful ministry look like? Well, verse 1, chapter 2. I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. He simply declared God's truths. He didn't depend on great speaking ability, flowery oratory, now, does that mean it's bad to learn how to speak correctly? No, it doesn't mean that at all. But you know what that means, Christian? If you've never had anything past an eighth grade education, and you're talking to somebody about the gospel, and you use the word ain't, can God still save that soul? Yep, it doesn't depend on us. And you cannot depend on that. That's my point here. Faithful ministry means you don't depend on yourself. But verse 2, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You need to determine to help sinners understand God is their creator, Lord, and judge. They're offensive offenders, and so on. They need to understand these truths. Last, number three, depend entirely on God's grace to save souls. Depend entirely on God's grace to save souls. Chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Depend entirely on God's grace to save souls. Verses 4 and 5. Verse 4. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You can't depend on yourself. You can't depend on your physical efforts to make sinners more receptive. We just need to make an environment that will help sinners be more receptive. Or we need to do this in their lives so that it will make them more receptive. We need to give them food or money or build a house for them so that they'll be more receptive. 
Is that how it works? No. It's not how it works. We're faithful with the message and the ministry of it. And we're depending entirely on God's grace and mercy to save our soul. And when God genuinely saves a soul, that soul will be forgiven the moment of salvation. And I listed these three points, the giving the gospel, regeneration, and, and belief. And by the way, that's not like, you know, over a course of days, you know, I'm on day one and day two, and now I'm on day three. It's instantaneous. We'll get to that in the next message, okay? When God does that, it's all combined in a single whole. But when a, a God does that, he, they're justified, they're brought into his family and adopted, they're united with Christ, all these Wonderful spiritual blessings. And the light bulb has gone on. And they hear. And they rejoice. And there's no doubt. That a true convert. Has been born again.